we'd like to teach you to sing. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. We would like to teach you to sing, but to do this we need your full cooperation. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, fun sound, sound bites, and audio oddities we find everywhere and anywhere. We look, you listen. We all scream for ice cream. Great radio from all over the world, delivered directly to your ears. To become a successful singer needs practice and dedication. Rewards, however, can be unlimited. Look in a small mirror and try to shape your mouth just as I have. Note that the mouth is open, the lips are stretched sideways, upper and lower teeth are showing, and the chin is up. Then hold the position again and sing, ah, softly, just as I have. Do this eight times. Ah, softly. Ah, softly. Ah, ah. confess that I'm not a religious person. I've had certain experiences that have been so intensely uplifting that they would absolutely qualify as religious experiences. One of them is standing on a riser in a concert hall or church, adding my voice to a room-filling, glorious piece of music. Singing is as heavenly as anything I know. Now trust me, I'm not very good. But when I'm done, feel like I could run a marathon, I'm so invigorated. And I don't have to be in front of an audience to be transformed. It could be in the shower, at a karaoke bar, in my car. Singing is singing is singing, and it's all music to my ears. How's your singing voice today, Mom? Jazz violinist Matt Glazer grew up in a musical household. And the connection his mother had to opera was so strong that in her later years, despite her debilitating loss of memory, it was one of the only things that kept her connected to her surroundings and her family. How's your singing voice today, Mom? I'm going to try it a little. You're going to try to and, sing a little and bit? And see what, what'll happen. We'll see. I don't know. You don't know. So do, you know do you know what day it is today? Oh, here we go. <laughs> do, you, do you know what month it is? I'm afraid I don't. You don't know? It's okay. No. Do you know where you are? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> My mom's name is Jeanette Taubin. Yes, yes. When she was younger, she was a professional opera singer. Yeah. Right. Um, she studied at the Manus School of Music, yeah. and she won awards. She won the mm -hmm. Arthur Godfrey Talent Show on television, yeah, right, and her right. stage name was Jeanette Bard. B-A-R-D. B-A-R-D, that's right. So maybe I'll, I'll put on some of this for you to listen right, to with headphones. Is that okay? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, a bit louder. Louder? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and then she had a stroke. She's here now at the Jewish Home and Hospital in Manhattan. <laughs> One day, we went to watch television. It turns out La Traviata was on television. No, it was um, Don Giovanni. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and that's where she was able to sing along with it and from the beginning to the end of the whole opera. And like she would say, 
now, da 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 da, and then the orchestra will go da 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 da. So clearly, the entire opera was there in her brain, yeah. immediately able to access it. Beautiful voices. That's good, Mom. Yeah, let it. I mean, the main thing that I'm interested in is how she has difficulty speaking and difficulty communicating in basic kinds of ways and difficulty doing daily tasks and remembering basic things. And yet at the same time, the entire score to probably yeah. 20 operas yeah. is there in her brain and she can access it immediately and sing it and immediately feel all the feelings and that's a lot of information yeah, to be storing yeah. this complete score to 20 different operas. Like cl it's close to that. Oh, is that yes. Matt. Matt, that's right. And then my sister is your daughter. What's yeah. her name? Um, I'm Matt. Matt. That's me. I know. But my sister is named Cla Claudia. Claudia, that's right. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in music, and I was interested in the role that music was playing in my mom's life at the end here, where everything else was degenerating. And I thought it would be interesting to find out a scientific explanation for some of these things. So I went to see a friend of mine who's a neurologist. But ultimately, I felt that that was really going down the wrong track. In some conversations I had with my sister, Claudia, she looked at it from a more psychological standpoint. And, and I thought that that was probably more fruitful. The most moving experience I've had with mom is that she has a picture of her mother, of our grandmother, who we never met. But she abandoned mom when mom was five years old. She has a picture of her on her, her, her little desk in the hospital. And mom pointed to that picture, and I said, Mom, who is that woman? And mom looked at me, and she said, oh, it's terrible. Mm. She's, and I, so I handed her the picture, and she clutched the picture wow. like, to her chest, wow. and she started to cry. Mm. And I said, that's one wound, I guess, that you never get over. And wow. she was really sobbing. She said, I've never felt it like this before. I see that what's happening to my mom is it's not really about music. Music is just one component, it's a reflection of something that's going on with her, which is that it used to be, you know, she was a knowledgeable music teacher and she could hold forth about librettos and information about these operas. And similarly, she had all these opinions about life and the world. All of that's gone now. She's just like a blank slate, very, very childlike. Oh, she was never that lighthearted. She was never much of an emoter of yeah. anything except for music. She was a person who got irritable quite easily and could start yelling quickly but so there's some benevolent quality to this right. she's completely transported right. her face just becomes radiant yeah, and everything changes oh it's really beautiful to watch you know she she'll be sort of leaning in the chair and then she'll hear music and she she puts her hands on the side of the chair uh -oh. and sits up and says oh wait listen here here this part <laughs> that's a Mozart 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 from the yeah. marriage of Figaro right Excuse me. 
Hello? Yes, ma'am, sorry. Do you have a record you have a a recording of Don Giovanni? Uh we don't have one unfortunately. I, I hope to bring one. Would you, would you like that music too? Oh god, yes. You do? You bet. <laughs> something I think it was in the Tao Te Ching it said something like in the search for knowledge every day something is added but in the if you're trying to approach the Tao every day something is removed <laughs> and that's what Alzheimer's is doing to my mom that she used to have all the stuff all this information ideas opinions um, a world an edifice of knowledge that she had built up over a lifetime and the Alzheimer's brick by brick is removing all of that knowledge but something essential is left. You just have this existential experience of music in the present moment. And that's something Alzheimer's has given to my mother. I wouldn't wish Alzheimer's on anybody. It's a terrible thing to watch somebody go through that. But I hope that I could have that without the illness of Alzheimer's, just that direct, visceral, utterly present experience of music. <laughs> That was great, Mom. That was, was. beautiful. That was that beautiful. Was the best I heard. Yeah, <laughs> Mom, you did great. Oh boy! I, I, I enjoyed. I, I, <laughs> here, lift up your arm so I can lift okay. your arm up. Thank you. Okay. Opera Mom was produced by Dean Olsher with Matt Glazer. It originally aired on the Next Big Thing on WNYC in New York. And while they're no longer producing new shows, you can listen to their vast archive on WNYC.org. I think an orderly piece of music is the, is the antithesis of, of confusion, of chaos, and it can, I think, lend its order to someone or, or give its emotion, or else it may be suddenly familiar and the person is transported back to the, the lucid time when they, they heard the music. I, 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 it's, it's very mysterious. So very mysterious. So we all know that music can move you to tears in some cases, but can it move you to another country? Well, Yoko Noge moved from Osaka, Japan, halfway around the world to the west side of Chicago for one reason only to sing the blues. Her first home here in the Windy City was a cockroach-infested $20 a night hotel. But she was too excited to care. Culture knows no bounds in the story of musical migration from producer Rachel Hopkin of Falling Tree Productions in London. This was where I first saw Chicago. It was very dark, very gray, no sunshine. Um, you can see a lot of factories and uh, warehouses. Nothing very cheerful about it. So I was having this uh, eerie feeling about why did I come here? How people's gonna treat us? Maybe I cannot survive here. Well, I said to myself, you'll see, you'll see. And there was a blues music boom that time in Japan. 
And when I was in high school, my, one of my classmates brought me a LP record of uh, Elmore James. That music just uh, blew me off. Nothing really decorative about it, nothing really fake about it. It was just straight expression from uh, the human being. I was a singer and I started to have this doubt of singing blues music without knowing the language, without knowing the culture. I decided someday I have to go to Chicago, but I had to wait a few years because I wasn't confident. And also I had my mother who was uh, mentally ill. She committed suicide when she was uh, 53. And that time, you know, I felt something released me from Japan and I was free to move from the country. So I came, I came from Japan with my ex-husband, who is a blues guitar player, and my other two friends. We are seeing now on, our, on just there, on our right, Sears Tower. That's, uh, that time it was the tallest building in the, in the world. And it gives me the feeling back of a time when I really wasn't sure of myself and wasn't sure of anything but this interest to the music. And uh, the purpose of coming here was seeing blues music and musicians in their own community. Well, I got a woman. I wasn't interested in the uh, north side of a white community. And uh, after we settled down, we hit west side of Chicago. Yes, I got a woman living way on the west side of town. It's been always poor, but you see always toughness in human beings. When my other women quit me, oh, you know, west side of people. My west side baby won't let me down. Well, let's see the address. 358, 358 South Pulaski in Chicago. And uh, this was a location, the uh, Mary's Lounge. It's no longer there, and it's changed to a uh, smooth social club now. This was the first place that I came to listen to the blues music in the west side of Chicago. I don't know if we can, we can go in. Let's see. I wasn't sure how people would treat us. Strange Japanese people come into uh, their neighborhood. And, uh, you know, we told them we were from Japan and we love blues music. 
And they were so nice to us. After three years, my first husband wanted to go back to Japan, and I wasn't ready to go back. So we concluded that、uh, the best thing for us is to get divorced. Where are you from? 
was very, very difficult because I didn't have anybody to really count on and、uh, financially and、uh, you know, mentally. And I didn't have anybody to really support my music. Age 30, I started to take a lesson of piano playing to uh, uh, accompany myself so I don't have to count on anybody else but me. You wanna make a coffee for? Are you ready?、Okay. Yeah, we're ready.、Mm-hmm. I met the clerk, my current husband, through my piano teacher, Erwin Helfer. I bought you some、uh, pastries. Fat boy pastries.、Mm-hmm. Good. He was playing a soprano saxophone with、uh, Erwin's group. And when I heard that sound, I thought, wow, like、uh, hugging you with. Cotton balls or something. And、uh, also, he started to talk to me because he saw me all by myself sitting at the bar. He was very nice and he tried to uh, introduce uh, people to me so I feel more comfortable and so forth. What a nice man! You know, I, I thought he's a very nice man. So I went for him. And it was easy to get him.、Though. Yep. Do you wanna come on and get it? Better get it while it's hot. Yes, it right here. Do you want it? Why don't you act like it? Cause I've got a lot. Everybody come from miles around. Cause they know I've got a hot this hot shit down. Do you wanna come on and get it? Better get it while it's hot. I want it. Oh, do you want When we got married, we decided to start a band. It's called the Jasmine Blues Band. We searched the musicians who are number one great, but also underheard.、Uh, there are a bunch of great musicians in the、uh, south side of Chicago and、uh, west side of Chicago in the black community, and they don't have a chance to come into the north side and play. That was our ongoing theme about the jazz and blues. Great to see you. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. At the wonderful club in the center of downtown Chicago. All right, I hope you're gonna have a great time with your good company. Yeah, good music. In the mellow town, feeling fancy free. I am not alone. I got company. Everything's okay. Well, this year, finally, I'm getting a citizenship of the United States. I came to the conclusion that I lived in the United States more than I lived in Japan as an adult. And whenever I go back to Japan, and after two weeks, I crave for Chicago. And certainly, music is completely different. Just go away and laugh and I 
can't think myself living anywhere but here in Chicago. In the middle of town. Musical Migrants, Yoko Noge, was produced by Rachel Hopkin for Falling Tree Productions. It first aired on BBC Radio 4. Yoko's still singing in Chicago. For a link to her website, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Once I rose above the noise and confusion Just to get a glimpse beyond the illusion I was soaring never higher But I flew too high Though my eyes could see I still was a blind man Through my mind could think I still was a madman Hear the voices and the dreaming I can hear them say Something about this piece of tape just makes me feel good. Is it the off-key prepubescent vocals, the candid lo-fi quality of it, or is it just that this tape and the sound of this girl singing her heart out reminds me of being young when music seemed to hold the secrets of the world? Some people use the term outsider music for music that seems to come from this place of innocence that isn't really trying to get at anything and yet gets at everything. In Canada in the 1970s, music teacher Hans Fenger recorded 60 of his students singing in a gymnasium and then pressed a few records to hand out to parents. The recording, which was done in a single take, eventually found itself gathering dust in a Canadian thrift store. But in 2000, a collector of outsider music came across the recordings and decided they had to be re-released. The resulting album, called Innocence and Despair, really spoke to people. It turned out to be an unexpected hit, climbing to the top of the Billboard charts and spawning a VH1 documentary. Not bad for an amateur kid's choir. Producer Katie Mingle tracked down Hans Wenger, who now plays in a surf rock band in China to ask him about the project. Before I was uh, teaching in Langley, I, I played in a heavy metal band. It never occurred to me to be a teacher. I wasn't really a good student myself. and uh, the Kids were okay, but I wasn't all that gushy about them, to be honest with you. I knew nothing about kids' music. I knew nothing about teaching. I knew nothing about anything. You know, I had hair. I had attitude. I weighed 98 pounds. But off I went to Langley and um, I started teaching. I was, I was hippy-dippy. I had really no philosophy at all about teaching. I had, uh, I can't really say I thought about it a lot, you know. I had a lot of ideas about music, but certainly not about teaching. You know, for me, I mean, I'd been playing in bands since I was like 11 or 12 years old, and it wasn't like anybody taught us. It wasn't even like anybody said, oh, this is the way you do it, or that's the way you do it. We just sort of did it. And I'd been doing music like that since I was a little kid. So when I went in to teach music, it never occurred to me that I was going to teach anybody how to read notes, or that I was going to teach anybody how to pass a test. The only thing I ever tried to teach children is really, is just to fall in love with making music. That, that was always my goal.
I just taught songs I knew. And, and, and I was very into David Bowie in those days. I was very into Iggy Pop. Um, I was into uh, Phil's, old Phil Spector records, Brian Wilson. And it wasn't until much later that I realized that um, the songs were thematic. You know, I had gotten a teaching job originally because I was with my girlfriend and, and she was having a baby and I needed a day job. And by the time I got this job, we were breaking up. And I think that in the back of my mind, you know, I was feeling like a, a little bit lost. Contrary to what people think, a lot of kids aren't that happy. Um, they all have troubles, they got problems at home, um, they can feel lonely, they can feel isolated, and the music can conjure up that feeling into them. Now whether or not they, they completely, literally understand the words, I'm not sure, sure that's so important. I, I don't think Sheila, when she was singing Desperado, really knew what a lot of those references were about, but she certainly captured the feeling of the song. heard other school choirs and things we sounded so different and so weird you know <laughs> that I thought oh well we can't be any good I mean listen to all those people they really know how to sing so <laughs> I, th I never thought of it in terms of it was special because it was good I always thought of it in terms of it was special because it was different Oftentimes, I would have 60, 90 kids in my class, and they'd be all over the place because there was no room, and we'd have instruments, and I, we had no equipment, so I brought in all the equipment from my band, which were huge Marshall amplifiers and bass guitars and all kinds of things. The kids, of course, really liked that. So there wasn't much room, and kids were practically on top of one another, and uh, I, I just sort of arranged them according to height, and uh, that was it. <laughs> I always felt like with my music teaching that I always was an outsider music teacher, you know? I mean, I never I never really participated in a lot of the music teaching events and all that kind of stuff. I was always like a little island unto myself. You know, people always use this, this term, like thinking outside the box and all that, but I, I think, for me, I didn't even know there was a box, you know? I mean, I... <laughs> does have this sort of the children of the corn, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it does, it does have that feeling. Well, I think we were kind of like a little cult, you know? So. It became kind of a, 
a kind of an underground hit in New York. Um, Tony Visconti, who was David Bowie's producer, had heard it, and uh, I think he thought it was a new wave band from New Jersey. And um, he couldn't quite believe that it was a bunch of little kids <laughs> from some farm country in Canada. <laughs> Yeah, I have students um, that still do music to this day. Um, they're always in touch with me. I jam with some of them once in a while. I felt that the whole success of this was a really vindicating kind of experience. It made me feel really like, wow, I can do something. So it's, it was great. I mean, when, you know, I had always taught my students in a really positive way. And then when somebody suddenly is positive about what you're doing like that, it gives you a great feeling. That was Hans Fenger, music teacher and the man behind the Langley School's music project. The story you just heard was produced by Katie Mingle. To see pictures of Hans and find links to more information about the project, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. And while you're there, you can hear me doing some singing of my own. But don't say, I didn't warn you. Begin singing when your voice fits comfortably with the music, moving up as it goes higher. Tristan Whiston performed for the first time as a solo soprano at the age of six, and after years of hard work, enjoyed an accomplished singing career. But a few years ago, Tristan decided to give up the most precious thing a singer has, the voice. In our next story, Middle C, Tristan documents his transition from female to male. I am sailing home again across the sea. I have this image in my head of a big ocean. One shore is woman and one shore is man. And I feel like I kind of exist somewhere in the middle, in the ocean, between the shores. I am starting today my radio diary um, where I'm going to basically record my singing as it changes as I uh, transition from female to male. My voice has changed throughout my life. I, I had a child's voice and then I, I went through my first puberty. Uh, puberty was a very <laughs> difficult time for me. I really shut down in many ways, and my voice actually, strangely enough, which had always been a soprano, went very low. 
And um, so I started singing alto. When I was about 18, my soprano voice re-emerged. And that's the voice that's pretty much been with me, say, since I was 18. So, you know, 18 years. And soon, I'm gonna start testosterone and my voice is gonna change. And, you know, at this very minute, thinking about that, it's, it's, uh, it feels a bit scary. Uh, it feels like there might be some loss. My name used to be Ruth, that's what I was christened, Ruth Margaret. The story goes that when I was born, the doctor said, what are you going to call her? And my mother said, we've decided to call her Ruth. And the doctor said, Bruce, that's a funny name for a girl. So I've always thought, yeah, you know, that sort of gender conflict was my introduction to the world. Here's Ruth just appeared down. It's 10 o'clock at night. She's just going to sing the song for Grandad. To a cowboy, all dressed in red, fell off his horse and whacked his head. Blood on the saddle, blood on the ground, great big blobs of blood all around. Well done! Well, the very first time I remember that we ever thought that you had a voice, you were two years old. And my father picked us up at Manchester Airport in England, and we're travelling along in the car, and all of a sudden this little voice started to sing, Come by, oh my Lord. And my dad, who was a, quite a good singer, said, Now who's that? He was absolutely amazed that you had such a beautiful voice at two years old. And you like to perform, you like to be... In the church choir at six years old, when you couldn't even read, you wanted to be in the junior choir, and we managed to finagle you into that, despite the leader's misgivings, and you sung a solo your first Christmas there. You did wonderfully well. You sang perfectly in tune, and you were six years old. Like, as a kid, Every day I had battles for really quite simple things. Like I can remember going to nursery school and my mother put a barrette in my hair right in the middle of my head. The idea of walking up the steps and walking in to my nursery school class with this barrette in my hair seemed mortifying to my four-year-old self. It was just so upsetting and I was like crying and crying, please, please, mommy, mommy, please take it out, take it out. Um, as we were, you know, walking up the steps to the nursery school, she kind of reached down and, and took it out. And, and then it was like, you know, the sun shone again for me and it was like, wow, I dodged another bullet. I don't know if you want me to say this, but I used to say to your father that I think something dropped off when you were born because I always thought you should have been a boy. I just think you had the more of the appearance of a boy than a girl. Take it. 
about 12, like we were all playing football like we always did and me and all the boys of the neighborhood of Lockerbie and they were picking teams and I was the last one to be picked. That was like a first for me in my 12 years that I was the last one to be picked and somebody kind of reluctantly said, you know, who's going to take Chubbs? Who's going to do this incredible favor? Who's going to make the sacrifice of taking a girl? I looked over at my brother. All I remember is seeing him turn away, look really embarrassed. And that was it. That was it for me in, like, my boyhood. There was like a seam being ripped apart. <laughs> you know, it sounds so dramatic, but it was dramatic. It was the moment when I really learned what it was going to be like to be me. That's it. I'm not a boy. The water is white. I cannot get warm. And neither have I wings to You know, and then for years it was like, wow, it's like I, I went to sleep. You know, I went to sleep and I was this boy. And somehow I woke up as a woman and I did not know who that was. And a few years later, I called my mother and had that talk with her where I said, there's something you should know, I'm a lesbian. And the first thing she said was, well, you've always wanted to be a boy. And I was like, what are you talking about? Uh, who says that, you know, I want to be a boy? I am a lesbian, you know, I'm, I was actually, you know, for a couple of years, really finding something about being a woman that, that, that I could sort of relate to for the first time. And a few years after that, I was like, well, maybe I can explore the being a boy. And um, I did. Uh, and I kind of, you know, adopted a bit of a boy character. It was like so wonderful to really, like really have this feeling of like another kind of coming out, but also refinding this, this adolescent boy that I, I felt so at home with. Sailing, I am sailing home again across the sea. I am sailing. I do realize that you have really lived as a boy for a long time, and so it's not, it's probably going to be a relief to you to actually do it properly, you know, do it finally. So, transitioning doesn't really shock me like it might have done if I hadn't always had that thought in the back of my head. And, and how did Dad react when you told him? Did you, you, you told him? I told you, Dad, and uh, he, I think he was a bit shocked. And I said, well, and he didn't really say anything. And once he did say to me, I hope I'm dead before this happens. 
but it, it's something it's it's out of our realm really we we don't live in toronto we don't live where a lot of people are transitioning and you know we don't move in those circles everybody we know has got you know kids and grandkids There was something about hearing that my father would rather be dead than to kind of live with me through my, my transition. It just sent me really to a real place of like, I'm such a freak. Like, what am I thinking? It just brought up a lot of really old kinds of feelings about not being the right kind of child, not being a girl that um, they could be proud of. I think my relationship with my mom will actually um, improve. Strangely, I think that it will actually improve. Um, I don't know about my relationship with my dad. I don't know about my relationship with my brother. I haven't even told him yet. And um, those are important relationships to me and I feel a bit like, well, they're in jeopardy. And that does feel like a high price to pay. Um, but staying as a woman in this world, growing older as a woman in this world, feels like a much higher price. In a week's time, um, I will get my first testosterone shot. Yeah, I'm scared and I'm excited. Um, I feel like I'm actually just in a suspended place of waiting and so mostly I'm really just like not thinking about it too much um, and thinking about it all of the time. At the beginning of any journey, a ship sets sail. Okay, I'm ready. At the point of departure, there's, you know, all this hoopla. There's like ticker tape and there's rice being thrown and people are cheering. And okay, so basically I'm going to go into um, a muscle in your buttock. Uh, so I need you to take your pants off, just kind of drop them down to below hip level. It's possible at the other end of the journey there'll be people waiting, you know, friends and family, and there'll be some celebrations then too. Now I'm going to inject the testosterone in, and you might feel a little bit of a, a pinch. shouldn't be very painful. Okay, it's all in, and we're done. How was that? Good. Good. <laughs> okay. But in between here and there, in between this shore and that shore, the boat just chugs along, <laughs> chugs along. 
I would say it was a little anticlimactic getting my first shot. I'd been waiting for it for a long time. You know, I guess some part of me maybe expected that, um, you know, I'd get my shot of testosterone and it would be like a thunderbolt or a lightning strike and I would, everything would be different and I'd be like the person I want to be. To be honest, I didn't feel anything at all uh, on a physical level. I got the shot and it was kind of like, oh, right. Things happen slowly. They happen in a certain sequence and they happen over time. just struck me in a real way that I'm gonna my voice is gonna be changing but it was just it just really struck me I don't have unlimited time with this voice I don't really think it'll impact my life very much some people might think it rather strange but I just think I have two sons and a daughter instead of two daughters and a son I'm more concerned about how it would impact upon your life can you hear me? Can you hear me? Home again, cross the sea. So it's just been over a month that I've been on testosterone. Not really noticing any big drastic changes. But there's something changing in my heart. There's like a lightness, a sense that I'm doing the right thing. I've been checking out my face to see if there's any facial hair going in or anything like that. I'm going to have to shave soon, and that feels really exciting. Like, it feels like a bit of a thrill. To be with you, to be free. As a kid, you know, my brother and I both had kind of fake razors, and my dad would give us his leftover bottles of Old Spice and we would have these rituals every night after our bath. We would stand in front of the mirror and kind of foam up and then take our fake razors and shave and then slap on our Old Spice afterwards. You know, then ride our towel horses down the hall to dry. Your brother, I imagine that Andrew's reaction will be, if I don't think about it, it'll go away, because if he doesn't like the idea of something, that's what he thinks. Right. So that's how he reacts to things. So I imagine he'll react the same way, um, but he doesn't want to know. I am sailing, I am sailing home again, cross the sea. My voice is breaking. Not like a a melting of ice that happens kind of consistently. The whole middle of my voice feels a bit like cheesecloth, like I'm I'm singing or I'm talking and it just feels gravelly and holy like I've smoked, you know, way too many cigarettes and drank bottles of whiskey and I wake up the next morning and I'm like, Hello. Can you hear me? Can you I'm catching sight of myself in mirrors, and I don't exactly recognize myself right away. I like what I see. I like 
the way my body's changing. I love the muscles. I love the broadening of the shoulders. My walk is changing. The way I smile feels like it's changing. Um, there's more confidence in myself moving through the world. I feel like I'm really stepping into something that's very, very truly me. Okay, so I'm gonna shave now. It's the shaving cream. So I don't know who teaches guys how to shave, but I, uh, I feel like I'm a little late in the game to be learning. I guess dads probably teach their sons how to, how to shave. Or older brothers, maybe. Oh, I'm self-taught. <laughs> I haven't talked to my, my dad really since May. My brother, I've sent two emails letting him know that I'm transitioning and I haven't heard back. I feel like I'm a bit of a, you know, I, I'm on a ship sailing solo through the sea. And, you know, I'm leaving people behind on one shore. And some of those people will be on the other shore when I get there to welcome me home. And some of them won't. I am sailing, I am sailing home again, cross the sea, I am sailing. My voice is finally broken. So, mix singing, not that much fun right now. I really can't sing, it um, makes me feel really vulnerable. I used to think it was kind of strange, and it, it, it is strange. I mean, it's different than what we were brought up as. You know, we always thought if you were male, you were male, if you're female, you're female. But I think if it, it makes you happier and more comfortable with yourself in your body, then it doesn't matter what other people think anyway, does it? It's your life. I am sailing, I am sailing. Home again, cross the sea. I did mention it to Andrew, but you know what Andrew was always like? If he didn't want to hear something, he put his hands and his, his fingers in his ears and said, Dad, Dad, I want to talk about it. Well, that was kind of, it, wasn't, it was a bit more mature than that, but not much. <laughs> so up to now, he's not really said anything. I think you and Dad get on a lot better than you did when you were supposed to be female. He seems to relate well to you. He's happy to see you when you come to visit. We've seen a lot more of you. You seem more settled down, more focused. <laughs> Do you notice any differences in the way I look or sound? Your voice is a little deeper. Look, you do look more masculine. You've got broader shoulders now. Um, more masculine shape, more more chunky, not fat, but more chunky. Um, we don't think any less of you because you're male than you're female. So. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're still our kid, right? Somebody asked me the other day, you know, if I consider myself a trans man or if I consider myself a man. And I said, I consider myself a trans man. 
because I bring with me those 37 years. One year on testosterone doesn't mean those years disappear. I am sailing, I am sailing home again across the sea. I imagined that the change would be a smooth sailing from point A to point B to point C, from she to he to me. had one eye peering into the road ahead, scouting out new terrain, searching and celebrating a long-awaited new whisker. And one hand is reaching back, just to check, just to see, is that part of me still there? Can I still claim that as me? It is March the 21st. Today it's April 20th. It's May the 2nd. It's June the 27th. It's July the 11th. It's Tristan and it's August the 18th. This is Tristan and it's September the 23rd. And it's October the 15th. Tristan. It's November Hi, the 3rd. Hi, this is Tristan. It's December the 10th. Hi, this is Tristan and it's April. And I've now been on testosterone for one year. To be free. My voice, my speaking voice, and my singing voice have changed quite a lot. Middle C was produced by Tristan Whiston and Karma Jolly for Outfront on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And I've changed quite a lot, and I don't feel like I've changed at all. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.